Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this time we are going to be doing a little recap on Ehud Sheleg, former Conservative Party treasurer and now Sir Ehud Sheleg, uh, who has had all sorts of interesting adventures since the last time we spoke about him. We'll be speaking to the eyes Richard Brooks about that in a moment. We'll also be speaking to Adam McQueen for a special Jubilee edition of the podcast. Very excitingly, this latest edition of The Eye features 70 glorious covers in a piece we are calling The Ascent of Mam for our Platinum Jubilee bumper issue. So we'll be speaking to Adam about that later. But first... Ehud Sheleg, now Sir Ehud Sheleg. There were all sorts of concerns about donations that uh, Mr. Sheleg, as he was then, had made to the Conservative Party before becoming the Conservative Party's treasurer, the person nominally responsible for all their fundraising. In March 2019, Richard Brooks appeared on page 94 and discussed some of those questions, queries, concerns about Mr. Shelleg's business activities. He has been in the news again since then and has cropped up quite recently, not only in Private Eye, but also in the pages of the New York Times. Very swish. So we thought it was time to get Richard back on and ask what Mr. Shelleg, now Sir Ehud, has been up to since then. Here's Richard. Two things, really. He's no longer treasurer of the Tory party. He finished his term. He's now also Sir Ehud Shelleg knighthood that arrived after he gave £3.6 million to the Tory party. And he was knighted in uh, Theresa May's dissolution honours list, or dissolute honours list, as some people call him. And since he got his knighthood, he's given about £9,000 for a party ticket, which isn't too grateful, I don't think. Oh, it's really dropped off, yeah. It's yeah. a shame. I mean, the last time you covered him really substantially in the eye was in roughly March 2019. And I think the night was that autumn. So slightly dispiriting to see that all your... Yeah, <laughs> the reverse curse of Gnome again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so so Ehud Shelleg, Sir Ehud Shelleg, we now know. What's yeah. he been up to in the last three years? He must have found time since he stopped being treasurer. Well, in the last three years, he's carried on being um, the co-owner of the Halcyon Art Gallery in Mayfair, I'm not sure if you've been there, but if you have, you'll find quite a few Andy Warhol-type prints and various other more contemporary artists, well, questionable artistic merit, I would say, but, you know, that's, I don't think, Lord Gnome doesn't employ me as an art critic, so (laughs) I'll leave it there. Uh, He gave quite a bit more money after then, until he got his knighthood, as I say, in um, 2020. And he's basically continued running the gallery, the pandemic Obviously, it wasn't kind to art galleries, but the, there is evidence that we reported of some very dubious furlough claims by the company. We had completely contradictory explanations from them as to whether they were employing people and um, still and, and paying them furlough at the same time. Lots of sources saying they were. So that didn't look good. He's taken quite a bit of taxpayer support, but otherwise fairly quiet on the Shelleg front until... A couple of months ago, when we reported some fairly serious concerns from within Barclays Bank, uh, which did date back a bit to when he was giving money to the Tory party. And a source told us that there was real consternation in the bank about the source of that money and that it was connected to his father-in-law. Although he's his father-in-law, he's only one year older than him. 
but we can maybe get on to that in a minute. Uh, he's a former Ukrainian government official, and his name is Sergei Kopitov, and he, ha- he ha- also has a pretty questionable background. He now has substantial interests in hotels in Crimea, but he was 15 years or so ago, he was a Ukrainian government official in the Interior Ministry. Then he became a minister in the Crimean administration, the Crimean parliament, which was then before the 2014 annexation, when that particular parliament was under the control of the party of the regions, which was the the party uh, run by Yanukovych, hmm. who was, you know, unceremoniously booted out following the Maidan protests and is now holed up in Moscow somewhere. So we have Mr. Shelleck, sorry, Sir Ehud, who has connections with Mr. Kopitov. And just as a quick mm. reminder for listeners who may not have gone back and listened to our March 2019 episode before listening to this one, there were concerns about the sources of the money at the time. So Halcyon, as you said, ran companies in Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, which were buying and mm. selling art from the UK company of Halcyon, the UK branch of it, as it were, yeah. apparently to be delivered to overseas customers. But there were discrepancies in the numbers. Halcyon claimed uh, that the UK branch was buying tens of millions of pounds worth of art every year from Singapore. That money Mm. wasn't showing up in the Singaporean accounts. That's right. There were some strange discrepancies. And there was also a fair bit of art trading being done in the UK through these offshore companies. So there was a lot of you know, what accountants would euphemistically call tax planning going on. Um, That was just one one aspect of the Halcyon business that we reported on. The other was dealings that um, Shelleg and his partner Paul Green had with some very dubious characters out in Russia. And so even at the time, there were questions about where the millions of pounds in total that Mr. Shelleg, as he was then, had donated to the Conservative Party, where that money might be coming from, because there are obviously rules about where money being donated to political parties isn't allowed to come from. And I Mm. think that might bring us back to Mr. Kopitov now. Yeah. And this is something that the New York Times has been picking up, but that you've also been on the trail of. Can you tell us about that in a bit more detail? Yeah, well, it turns out that the the concerns that have been expressed to us by the source a couple and that we reported a couple of months ago about Mr. Kopitov's money were very well founded because a couple of weeks ago, Jane Bradley, who's a New York Times reporter in London, got sight of a what's called a suspicious activity report from Barclays Bank to the National Crime Agency in the UK. These reports have to be made where bankers are suspicious that money they're being asked to handle might be a bit iffy and uh, they might be in danger of becoming involved in money laundering. And this suspicious activity report, which we've gone into a bit in the in the latest issue, s- described how a convoluted flow of funds, firstly from Kopitov to Sheleg and his uh, wife, Kopitov's daughter, and then how that sort of pinged between various accounts uh, into the Sheleg family trust and then was lent again to Sheleg uh, before he donated a big chunk of it for about £450,000 to the Conservative Party. So that's what the New York Times exposed. And, you know, it's kind of, it's strange that uh, a couple of months ago, there was, this was the big story in the country, if strange Russian money coming in because of the, Mm. the, 
you know, once once Russia had invaded um, Ukraine, everybody got interested in it again. But this single incident really dwarfs the kind of things that people were getting very un- hot under the collar about then. It's, you know, it's absolutely huge. Not only did uh, Shelley donate £450,000 in February 2018, but three months after that, having received, remember, $2.5 million from Kopitov, in May 2018, he gave a further £750,000. So, you know, we're getting pretty close to uh, the bulk of that $2.5 million by now. You know, so it does appear that huge amount of money comes in from this very questionable character in Ukraine, Crimea, mm. and then very large amounts go into the Conservative Party coffers. And just to be clear, if Mr. Kopitov had tried to make that donation himself, he wouldn't have been allowed mm. to, is that right? No, that's right. And this is what the SAR says, that the suspicious activity report, that you know, it, one of the reasons they were concerned was because it would be illegal for money to come from someone who's not on the UK electoral roll. What can be done next to either prove or disprove this claim? I mean, it's entirely possible that the two sums of money are completely unconnected. It just happens <laughs> to be that the, the money goes from Mr. Kopitov yeah. to Mr. Shellig and then from Mr. Shellig, a different amount, you know, a different, completely different. Yeah, I think the the regulators, the Electoral Commission ought to take a look at it, take a judgment. And I think they are, you know, of course, if you were to talk about criminal offences, you would obviously have to prove that or, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. But in mm. terms of regulatory offences, I'm not sure that you would need to. And I think they really ought to have a look at this and say, come on, if we can't say this is not an unallowable donation, then what can we say is? It's, it, it would just be too easy. All you would have mm. to do is put money from a foreign donor into an account with at least that much money in it already and then pass on the same amount, but say a similar amount, but say, oh, no, that wasn't the money that came in. That was the money that was already in the account. Right. You know, and the money that I'm getting from abroad is actually just, you know, filling up my account or, you know, paying, paying my shopping bill or whatever. Um, yeah. I'm using that for a different reason. Is there any possible indication as to why these payments might have been made? You can understand why Mr. Shellac might have wanted to donate to the Conservative Party, partly because uh, almost all party treasurers mm. have made enormous um, donations to the party and almost all have then gone on to be knighted. In fact, I think it might be... All, all become lords, actually. Right, Shelley's yeah. a bit unlucky. He's been kind of uh, <laughs> exposed a bit before he's got to that stage. And I don't know if he will make the red benches yet. Mm. But I can't, I'm not sure, you know, why would... Um, you, we don't know. You you can only speculate and you can very quickly get into conspiracy theories. But clearly, Ehud Shelig, who had absolutely no discernible political interest until he started giving large sums of money to the Tory party in 2017, decided that for some reason he wanted to get into politics. Those large amounts of money came with the status of treasurer, which is more of a sort of honorary title than actually involving any work you know and then came the knighthood i'm not questioning not stating that anybody in particular has broken a law but it's obviously in general just it's cash for honors that's what it is you give the money get a role the treasurer role Mm. and then you can get the honor for services to politics well it's not really it's just gifts to politics 
cashed for po- to politics. <laughs> <laughs> but why did he want to become so prominent in the Conservative Party? Why did he want the knighthood and the peerage? Was that to gain some sort of influence? Is there something really dangerous here? Something about Russian influence? We don't know. Have you been in touch with uh, Sir Ehud's representatives about this yet? Not recently. I was a while ago, but <laughs> I didn't. I didn't use to get straight answers. I've been in touch with Mister Kopitov. Oh yes, who uh, who says that he's a retired public servant? He, he's yes, he's just a retired pensioner, is what he called himself. Ah. Even though he owns lots of very expensive hotels and gives multi-million dollar gifts. It reminds me a bit of um, Hyman Roth in The Godfather. Do you remember? He, I don't. He, when asked what he was doing by the FBI, he said, I'm just a retired investor living on a pension. You know, he was, <laughs> he was a mafia kingpin. But we're not going to say that any of these people has anything like that. Probably for the best. <laughs> <laughs> Ehud Sheleg's wife is Lilia, mm. who is Sergei Kopitov's daughter. Mm. Uh, she's 30 years younger than Sir Ehud, and a former Miss Ukraine. I mean, I don't know whether we want to make the point that um, normally the sugar daddy arrangement works the other way around, that um, (laughs) he provides the money, whereas he's getting the money in this arrangement. (laughs) And these matters have been raised, haven't they, in the British Parliament? They have. Quite a long time ago, uh, Labour MP Stephen Kinnock raised our stories about because there was so much on him back then. And he got knocked back by the chairman of the Conservative Party at the time, Brandon Lewis, in quite sort of almost threatening terms. Brandon Lewis said, you want to be careful because this could be libelous. You know, you might get sued. And by the way, you wouldn't want anybody looking at all the Labour Party's contacts, would you? So, you know, he got a you know, what you could kindly call a very bullish response from <laughs> Brandon Lewis, who'd had his party chairman must have had some kind of role in Shelleg's appointment. And then after Sir Ehud became Sir Ehud in early 2020, he gave Brandon Lewis £10,000. Thank you very much. We're not drawing any connection whatsoever between no, Mr no. Lewis's response and the donation. No. Of the, the only connection is a very short space of time. <laughs> That doesn't mean anything. That equals conspiracy theory, of course. Ah, yes. But I don't know why Brandon Lewis needed £10,000 or what he did with it. Perhaps someone should ask him. Well, I think I'm looking at the man who's meant to be asking him. (laughs) That's a good point. That'll go on my list. Richard Brooks there. And on current showing, you will be able to tune in again in July 2025 to find out what Sir Ehud did next. Will he have made it to the House of Lords? We don't know. Now we turn to uh, a rather happier story, the platinum jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, known to Private Eye readers as Brenda. The Queen is on the front cover of this week's edition of Private Eye, and it's not the only time she has featured there. In fact, this week's edition of the magazine features a gorgeous supplement, beautifully put together, with 70 times the Queen has appeared on the pages of Private Eye right from 1962, the very first time, all the way up to the present day. So it's been 70 glorious years. I spoke to Adam McQueen, who, uh, as well as all of his work, obviously, on the Street of Shame and other bits of the mag, is the eye's constitutional historian, if you like. Now, it may be 70 covers that we're running in this week's magazine, but actually she has appeared on the front page of the mag a little bit more than that. Here is Adam to explain. 
In fact, the Queen has appeared apparently on 79 different covers of Private Eye over the uh, 60 and a bit years that we've been in circulation. Uh, can you guess? There's two people ahead of her. Two people have appeared on more covers than Her Majesty. Can you guess who they are? Ooh, this is fun. Um, I would guess Margaret Thatcher. Bang on. Oh, good. Okay. With guess how many covers? Oh, uh, 85. 97. She's Whoa. right out ahead. She's she's right there in front of everyone else. There's one person between her and the Queen. Can you guess who? Oh, gosh. Um, It's got to be... I'd say another... I'm going to say Tony Blair. You're very good. You're very good. But can you guess? And if you think about this, you will be able to guess how many covers Tony Blair has appeared on. Ooh, uh, 94. It had to be. Yes, it's perfect. One of many, many, many reasons why Private Eye should never put Tony Blair on its cover ever again. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so that's well, that's a very respectable third place for Queenie. Um, looking through them, looking through the supplement in the magazine, some of them are referencing stories that are so abstruse, I've, I've got almost no idea what they mean, referring to historical figures. But some of them are very, you know, still very gettable and still very relevant. So can you tell us a bit about the first time she was on the cover? Because I do like this one. Well, amazingly, she was the first person ever to speak a photo bubble, so to speak, on the oh. on the cover of Private Eye. It was the uh, the fifth edition, February 1962, and it looks very, very different. You'll see this in the supplement that we've put out with the magazine this week. It's got a different masthead on it. It's got a very, very different look to it, but it has got that photo bubble coming out of the royal coach. And you, this is one that needs a little bit of context um, because the, uh, the headline on it is Prince Charles, A Nation Waits. Uh, and Prince Charles, then aged 13, which seems sort of just as unbelievable as the fact that the Queen has been on the throne 70 years now, the, the idea that, that Prince Charles was ever a teenager, had been rushed to hospital for uh, an emergency appendectomy, uh, having been uh, struck down with appendicitis whilst at boarding school. And so the bubble that's coming out of the royal carriage in all its pomp and, um, and, and ceremony as it goes through, I think, Piccadilly Circus is Great Ormond Street, James, and step on it. Impeccable impression there. Lovely. Um, dead ringers, if you're looking for a new recruit. Obviously, I was going um, for the young, the young queen now, which is why it doesn't sound quite as, as, as people would be familiar with. It's, I mean, so many appearances. I've th- I'm just wondering, I know, obviously, the attitude of the firm or that generation of the firm has never complained, never explained. Have any of the covers prompted any complaints, uh, rebukes, blowbacks? I'm guessing not lawsuits, but... Not from the palace. No, lots and lots from okay. readers uh, over the years. I mean, oh, it's, it's okay. one thing that still right up uh, 70 years into her reign and into the 21st century, you still get letters from readers complaining. I mean, most recently about our, our, uh, our coverage of Prince Philip's death and funeral. Uh, there were plenty of people who said, outrageous, shouldn't be making jokes about this at all. Um, which in a way, I think, because um, Prince Philip was such a kind of fan and connoisseur of the uh, of the tasteless joke himself, I think we, we, we probably had slightly a, a better reception with those than, 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 mm. than we might get in certain circumstances. But this is not the day to ponder those circumstances. Um, no, in terms of stuff from the palace, nothing at all, right up until a couple of years ago where there was one item in the flunky column which got us an official rebuke uh, from, not from the Queen, on, on personal oh. from, from from a spin doctor at the palace but there was this moment because um, post from the palace does arrive on very very expensive posh stationery I mean it still is, is snail mail that comes into the office um, it's almost like vellum parchment like they do the Queen's speech off of but it also has its own um, uh, not only letterhead but postmark on it an actual royal postmark across the stack and as this arrived I mean it went to Ian the editor first but then he he, he, he passed it on to me uh, to, to talk to Flunky because I'm kind of Flunky's um Handler, flunky hand stuff over to me in a dead letter drop in St James's Park. That's not actually true. Flunky being 
our royal correspondent for any listeners. Yes, yeah, our top secret, our top secret man inside the palace. Exactly, man or woman, I should say, inside the palace <laughs> or corgi, possibly. Don't know. Um, uh, yeah, but no, no, it came across with the letter. And, and you, you have this moment before you open it, you think, is, is this it? Is this the order to attend the palace? Am I going to get beheaded? But uh, no, it was, it was fortunately just a whinge which went in on the letters page. But that, as far as I know, is the, the only time that they have ever complained or ever, uh, well, they didn't really attempt to explain. Looking back, you can kind of guess which ones might have prompted more complaints than others. So um, Harry Comfort's Queen in Nazi Row. Was, there was the footage of the Queen performing a Nazi salute at the age of about five. Prince Harry's leaning over and whispering, just tell them you were pissed. That must have prompted a few. <laughs> Which is kind of a counterpart to to the cover when Prince Harry himself wore the, uh, the, the, the Nazi uniform and that was his excuse to a fancy dress party uh, in, in, in the mid-noughties. It's weird to think of, Harry, of, of Prince Harry, I was about to say Harry Potter then, uh, to, to think of how, uh, Prince Harry and the, the person he's kind of transformed to into in the meantime. But that was the kind of hard jinx he was getting up to at that point. Uh, and we, we didn't put Prince Harry on the cover, we put... Uh, Hitler on the cover, uh, just saying I've come as Prince Harry, uh, a tasteless joke special. But that, that one's not made this because the Queen didn't actually feature on that one. But, um, okay. but one, one thing that I think is really interesting, when you look back at the, uh, the, the, the back copies for, for nearly all of the Queen's reign, is how much she's featured on the cover but how little she's actually featured inside. I mean, there's always been endless Sylvie Crins about Charles and Diana and, and mm. Fergie and all the other members of the royal family. And there's been an awful lot of stuff about the sort of paraphernalia around the royals and the more minor rules. Um, but, but the Queen herself is, is quite sort of hard to parody. Um, she's quite hard to sort of capture the voice of. I mean, Craig Brown did an absolutely brilliant attempt at it for, uh, I think it was the Golden Jubilee in 2002, where, she, where he did this wonderful diary of the Queen, basically, you know, members of her family of Edward and Andrew coming in to visit her, and all, all she would sort of say to them was, have you come far? Uh, but then, being, you know, being absolutely delighted to see dogs and horses, which effectively, I think he's, you know, he's absolutely Not captured still, yeah. the Queen and everything we, we, we know about her at that point. <laughs> but, but because she says so little, because she basically has spent 60 years saying nothing but, have you come far? Um, <laughs> It, it, it's quite sort of hard to get that voice. But the, the weird thing is that visually, she is such an extraordinary... She's immediately recognisable. She's perfect for the cover in that way. You know, you, 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 there's really no question. There's no, she's not some obscure political figure that people aren't going to get. But also... All she does, effectively, is pose for photos. That's where, you know, she will turn up and she will obligingly, you know, hold a machine gun uh, whilst uh, visiting an army <laughs> barracks. So we can, we can put that on the cover after the uh, Diana Panorama interview with her saying, I don't think a divorce will be necessary. <laughs> or she will... I mean, there's one extraordinary one where she's, she's, she's kind of plunging the handle on, I assume, fake kind of um, TNT explosion yes. uh, detonator, <laughs> uh, which, uh, we, we, which we tied in, I think, to uh, Ch- Charles and Camilla's wedding. But she endlessly does these photo opportunities that are just absolutely perfect for private eye. The only other person who ever did this uh, was, was, um, was Boris Johnson in his days as mayor of London, where he would just obligingly mm. turn up and do any sort of photo opportunity that could have a, have, a, have a caption put on it. But that's essentially, you know, you know what, what, what private eye has done with the Queen. She's lent herself to photo bubbles and to covers, but we still, I, I mean, I don't know if anyone has ever quite, quite, quite captured the voice. You have to take her off into slightly surreal um, flights of fancy rather yeah. than, uh, than do a straightforward. I mean, you couldn't do sort of Dear Bill letters about the Queen, for instance, or, or anything like that. And it's interesting, of the covers, of the 70 covers that you've run out of 79 that have featured her, about 10 of them are from the state opening of Parliament, which is yeah. just about the longest time that she's speaking at any length uh, in public including that very first one from 1964. Well, that's the, the point that was made on, on, uh, in 1964 when she read the first, uh, first speech of uh, Harold Wilson's <laughs> Labour government at the state opening parliament. And, and they went with the uh, cover bubble, 
And I hope you realise I didn't write this crap. Uh, which, <laughs> that, that's something probably quite. Down. I mean, that was one I think which 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 got a few um, a, a few complaints at the time. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of set, setting the tone quite early on for Private Eyes royal coverage. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it still has the power to prompt complaints? I don't know. You and I don't see the letters page as much as say someone like Tris, who's the magazine's chief sub editor. But royal coverage or any Les Majesté, do you think it still prompts the same kind of outrage? Well, something that did happen was a recent flunky piece, which one of the uh, paper's royal editors, um, in very naughtily, uh, rather than saying go out and buy private eye, uh, took a photo of and put up on, oh, on Twitter. Uh, you know, rather than actually going out and getting any stories himself, he, he just thought he'd steal one of our ones and share it on Twitter. But the number of people who reacted to that, and the thing that they were really, really upset about was that age-old, uh, well, not quite age-old, because it hasn't been the entire time, it's only been since the 70s, but that tradition of calling the Queen Brenda. People, it was Brenda Geddon, frankly. I mean, people were really, really outraged about it, particularly Twitter users in, in America who just said, Dare this magazine use such a disrespectful term to uh, to to to, uh, to apply to a Majesty? But it you was know, just like you're a bit late on this. It's been since 1971. I mean, we've got with it. Readers have got so used to it. We're, we're worried that new people coming in won't, won't won't get who we're talking about now when we talk about Brenda and Brian. Yeah. That's how long it's been running. I mean, it's, it's frankly to me seems affectionate because I only started reading the magazine what the late 90s or early noughties. So. It's just always been there. Part I think of it's a... entirely affectionate, isn't it? It's one of those kind of pop art. I mean, you don't you don't get. You had Brenda from Bristol, didn't you? Who reacted to the uh, the, the election? It's one of those sort of slight comforting old lady names. I mean, it, it does yeah. quite suit. And Charles is Charles is naturally a Brian. I just feel. Um, I mean, I, I should say at this point. I mean, these these are not um, phrases, not nicknames that Private Eye made up itself. These these were oh, really? these were identified um, in the seventies as, as as ones that were floating around, were being used in the palace by by courtiers themselves. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, there were, there, were, there were plenty of others which never quite caught on in the same way. So, um, Princess Margaret was apparently referred to there below stairs as Yvonne. Uh, which is rather lovely. It sort of kind of suits her as well. She's very much an Yvonne. And uh, when Princess Diana turned up uh, in, in, in 1981, she was referred to as Cheryl, which I liked as well. And then the one I really liked, which never quite caught on, was um, it, when, when Harry and Meghan first got together, apparently courtiers, and this is a much more up-to-date one, courtiers mm. were referring to them within the palace as, um, as Chandler and Monica, which is just kind of, kind of perfect for them <laughs> at, at that point, I think. But, um, but the story is they're H&M, so that, 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 that works as yeah, well. Yeah, they're yeah. a bit more of a discount kind of clothes store <laughs> as a couple, so that's, that's the one that everyone's kind of gone with. Is there a favourite Queen cover that you have out of this selection? I really, really like the Trump royal visit one, where this is one of those examples of, uh, uh, of her obligingly posing for, for things that can be repurposed for other things. She's yeah. signing some sort of book, a visitor's book, I guess, and she's all decked out in a hat and, yeah. and, and, and looking very, very regal. But it was the week that um, there was an enormous petition going online to stop <laughs> Donald Trump when president... Uh, visiting Britain and, and, and we've got the Queen just signing this thing pen in hand and just saying well one has to draw the line somewhere uh, which I thought you know it, it's wonderful because you sort of have the feeling it's probably true I mean to be honest she, at this point in her reign she'd probably draw the line at meeting anyone she must be actually sick of meeting US presidents and everyone else but um, but particularly Trump that was a good one but the other ones a lot of the things I remember uh, uh, didn't actually make it to the cover they were photo bubbles that appeared inside and there was a kind of series mm. 
Do you remember after Princess Diana died when there was these these, these kind of efforts to modernise the monarchy and make the Queen mm. appear kind of a bit more hip and with it? And, and um, well, the people's princess doesn't work, does it? But the people's the people's Queen. Mm. And there were some wonderful ones in that where she was sort of discussing football with with, with people and saying, "Oh yeah, you got to play Giggsy up front." And uh, there's a nice one of her um, behind the bar, you know, like another one of these stage photo opportunities where she's pulling a pint of beer, yeah. but she's kind of looking off camera and and and, and the eye had a bubble coming out of her mouth and she said, "Oh, Phil, you're a Guinness or what?" <laughs> and I really, really, I, I love those. There's a, there's a nice one as well of her receiving a posy, but it kind of looks like it's the other way around, and she's just saying, "Lucky white Heather, dear." Um, uh, so those 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 are the ones that stick in my mind, because it was. I, I mean, it, it, Again, they're sort of affectionate because they're parodying what was an absolutely ridiculous exercise in the first place. Adam McQueen there, and if you would like to see more ways that the Queen has been engaging with the youthful satire magazine readers of the country from the 1960s right through to the present day, you can find it all in the current issue of the magazine, 1574. It's on newsstands now. Or why not take out a subscription at private-i.co.uk. That is it. For this episode of Page 94, we'll be back quite soon because it's going to be our bumper annual Paul Foot Awards Spectacular in June. We're going to be at the Paul Foot Awards, which will, touch wood, be happening live and in person again for the first time since 2019. That'll be along in a few weeks. Don't miss it. Until then, we hope you've enjoyed this episode, produced as ever by Matt Hill of Rethink Audio. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>